Hello and welcome back to the Irish Football Fans Podcast. I'm Joseph McCarthy of the Irish Abroad website. I'm joined again by Mark Kennedy of Hawkeye Psychic and Phil Flanagan from the bottom of Pit of Football. And we're delighted to welcome Rihanna Jarrett of the Ireland national team and Brighton and Hove Albion women's team to us this week. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, no problem. It's an honour to have an Ireland international on the show. And um, we're looking forward to the discussion with you. We asked on Twitter during the week if there was anyone who would be interested in discussing the growing role of minorities in the, the Ireland national team. Recent weeks, we've seen Michael Buffemi score for Southampton in England. We're seeing more and more of the children of people who have moved to Ireland in the early part of the 2000s come through in the underage sides for both men and women. And uh, we were delighted when Rihanna said she'd be interested in coming on to discuss this. Rihanna, if you want to uh, give us some of your background, we know you're over in Brighton at the moment and pre-season training has just begun. Um, yeah, so I'm from Wexford, um, obviously in the southeast of Ireland. So my mom is was born in Brighton, Wexford. She moved to London when she was 21 or 22. Um, and from there, she met my dad, who was from Jamaica. So my dad had moved to England, I think, when he was about six or seven. Um, and from there, then, they had three kids together. So myself and my twin brother, Jordan, and then we have a younger brother, Conley, who is four years younger than us. Um, so obviously, my, my mom's Irish, my dad's Jamaican. We lived in England for a few years, but I've been living in Wexford um, from I was 10, properly, until just January, just gone when I moved and signed with Brighton. Growing up in Ireland as as mixed race, was there many other kids who were also mixed race around you? Um, so in Wexford, there wasn't too many to begin with. Um, so it would have been obviously me and my two brothers. And there would have been my cousin, um, Robin Dempsey, um, and his two sisters, um, Saoirse and Megan. And then we have another family friend then, um, Ethan Boyle, who plays for Linfield in Belfast now. Um, he would have lived in, in Wexford with us as well. And kind of a, a few others then then as well um, was all I kind of knew of um, in and around the Wexford area. When did you first get into sports? Um, so I lived in Ireland briefly when we were younger. Um, so I started playing with North End United's boys team. I think I was about six at the time. So that would have been about 2002. I started playing with the boys, played with them for a few years and we moved back to England for a couple of years before he moved back again. Um, so I would have started playing with the boys' teams and that kind of what got me into soccer was my twin brother started playing and I was kind of a bit jealous. Um, twins always want what the other person has, whether it was food, whether it was toys. It was the same thing with football. He started, I seen him play, so I wanted to start. So I kind of pestered my mom to see if she let me join. Um, I think she, she listened to me whinge for about a, a week and then she let me go up and join with the boys' team. Now she, she'll tell you herself, she never in a million years thought I'd stick at it. And, and here I am, kind of 20 years later, still, still chanting my arm. <laughs> I think you're doing more than that. Um, <laughs> represented Ireland at all underage levels. Uh, do you remember what when you first were called up for trials with the national side? Um, yeah, so I would have been... I played with the, the Leinster schools team. Um, and from there, I got trials for the Irish under-15 schools team. And now, unfortunately, I didn't make that squad. But a couple of weeks later, um, I got trials for the Irish under-17s team. So I was only 15 at the time. And that came off the back of a Gainer Cup tournament, which was the, the female version of the Kennedy Cup. And down there, there there's FAI scouts there, kind of regional managers. Um, they're all taking note. And from there, I obviously got 
got noted and the under 17 manager called me up for a trial um, and I was fortunate enough then that I got selected for the the first round and, and kind of progressed there then under 17s and then 19s uh, and then through to the, the senior pathway then as well. That's held down in, in Limerick in the University of Limerick that's our, myself and Mark's alma mater and we are quite proud that the two biggest school children competition in the country is held on the grounds of UL every year. He signed for Wexford Utes and played in the inaugural uh, Women's National League. In years past a cruciate knee ligament injury kind of meant the end of a career for a player. A second one means you're out of the game for nearly two years. You've actually had three of them and you're still playing, which is amazing. What is the mental attitude you need to have to come back from that injury? So, yeah, I was unfortunate enough that I tore my ACL. I think it was three times in the space of maybe five years. Um, so the first one I'd done when I was 18, um, we were away with the Irish under 19s. Um, it was the first kind of injury of any, any sort that, that I had had, whether it be short term or long term. And it kind of took me a little bit, little bit of time to kind of realize the the extent of it, the extent of the recovery. Obviously, it, it's all individual based, and you can't progress to the next step until you've completed the the first step, and and so on and so forth. Um, so I, I came back playing after the first one, um, came back the end of the following season. I think we had six games left with Wexford Dukes, um, and I was lucky enough that. When I returned, they they were able to ease me back in game time, kind of build it up from 20 minutes to, to half an hour. And then we were in the League Cup semi-final, um, which we managed to win, which which brought us to our first cup final as a club. And we managed to win that in, in Ferry Carrick. We had a home draw for that. So we beat Castlebar Celtic at home, which was our first kind of major um, event that we'd won, our first trophy as a club, which, which was fantastic. From there, then, I took up a scholarship to go to the US. Um, so I went to a, a small college called the University of Tennessee at Martin. Had a great time. We played, I think it was like 20 games in the space of a month. Um, it was fantastic. We were playing most Thursdays and most Sundays. And unfortunately, when I came back, um, went on a trip away with the Irish senior team, my first trip, and I'd done my knee again in, in the January. Um, so I chose not to go back out to the US. Um, so once again, it, it was difficult. Um, I'm fortunate enough that the FAI looked after me in terms of I got my operation nice and quick and got an MRI as soon as we came back, got the operation nice and quick so I could start the recovery. And I was well looked after. Um, I was back playing, I think, about nine months and my left knee went again. And I think the third one was definitely the the toughest one mentally anyways. Um, I think for myself, I was trying to put on, put on a brave face because obviously I'd been through it before, trying to reassure everybody that yes, I'd be back. But it got to a point, I think maybe two months through recovery, I, I was lacking in motivation. I wasn't able to push myself or get myself going. I remember I got in, I got put in touch with Dan Horn, who is the, I think he's the, the physio and strength and conditioning guy for the Irish men's senior team. Um, he was lecturing in IT Carlo at the time where I went to college. Um, so Sue Ronan, who was the manager of the Irish senior team at the time, put me in contact with him. And was like, if it works, I could do my rehab with him. I could meet him before class um, in, in Cairo, which was, which was great. And we had a conversation and he was like, "Where? at what level do you want to get back playing? I was like, I don't know. I was like, at the minute, I just want to get back to a level where I can just have a kickabout with my friends or have a kickabout with the boys on the street. Um, so he was like, OK, I had a little bit of a breakdown. I think about two weeks later, maybe a week or two weeks later, he asked me the same question and I never missed a training session with Wexford Dukes, never missed a match even when I was injured. And after kind of going away and, and thinking about it and having that little bit of a breakdown, he asked me the same question. I was like, no, I want to get back playing with Wexford Dukes, I want to get back playing with my friends. Um, and from there, we kind of pushed on with the recovery. 
um, kind of took everything in my stride. And I think it took me maybe 14 or 15 months in total the last time around. But I think those extra three months were, were the best thing that, that happened to me. I think I was mentally stronger um, and, and definitely physically stronger coming back. And I think I've been back playing now three years since the end of June. Um, and I feel like I'm, I'm going from strength to strength. So hopefully I can continue that. That's phenomenal. Like I said, the cruciate knee ligament injury is not uncommon. A second one is is rare and a third is, well, I've never heard of it before, to be perfectly honest. Congratulations on coming back from it. <laughs> you were over in Brighton at the moment. The Super League season in England was cancelled due to the ongoing global health crisis. But pre-season has started, so you've just got back to Brighton. And uh, how is uh, training going so far? So yeah, I just got back at the weekend and we had kind of fitness testing Monday and Tuesday. So it's nice to be back in and around. Um, we're split into kind of small little groups, small little bubbles at the minute. So we were getting our testing done in, in our small numbers. Um, and then we'll train again kind of Thursday, Friday in our smaller groups. And I think they have a, a phase plan as to when stages can change in terms of training, when we can have more numbers and, and when things can progress kind of back to a, a normal sense. But no, obviously we had a, a long break off. We finished up. Um, I think the last game we played was the end of February, which was the cup game um, against Crystal Palace. And then we went into an international break. And then from there, then obviously everything escalated with COVID-19. So we all went our separate ways. We all went home, which we thought was only going to be for a couple of weeks. But obviously the, those weeks kind of turned into months. And eventually we found out in May then that they were deciding to, to cancel the season and, and we pick up a fresh then in, in pre-season. So obviously we've all been away from each other and away from the game for quite a long time now. So everyone's kind of in good spirits, delighted to be back. Obviously um, things have changed in terms of how we train, how we prepare for training with all the guidelines and precautions set out by the UK government as well as the, the English FA in terms of like social distancing and, and health and hygiene and that aspect. So obviously we're, we're all learning, but the club and, and, and personnel involved in the club have done a fantastic job in, in making sure it's safe for us to, to return and, and we can't thank them enough for that. Yeah, and you know we hope that when football does return, there are crowds there to see you play as well. If we can just get on to the reason we, we asked for someone from the minority community in Ireland to, to come on the call, how important do you think sport is for minorities in Ireland in terms of uh, integration and for visibility? Um, yeah, obviously, I think sport is a huge aspect um, in life for, for everyone involved. In, and you can say, especially um, for the minority in Ireland, um, obviously, you're coming from a new country, you're coming to a new country. Um, a lot of people are, are coming from other backgrounds. And, and as I said, they are the minority. So it's nice to have something that you can relate to another individual on. So in, in terms of a sporting context, kids, um, any kid that plays sports, that, that that's naturally something that they can relate to the next person that, that's playing with them. And yes, you have it in school as well. But I think sport is, is something that, that people choose to do. Um, obviously, everybody has to go to school. And <clears throat> you say that the friends you make through through sports or, or through college are, are friends kind of that you choose yourself because they kind of share the same interests. So in terms of that, I found that a lot of my friends that I've made through football, whether it be through younger um, when I was growing up or even now are friends that, that, that I'm, I'm going to have for life. Are you aware of your role as a, as a role model, maybe for the kids that are coming behind you? You know, someone who's also mixed race or uh, whose parents may both be from outside Ireland and are seeing you succeeding both on a national and international level and is an inspiration for them. 
Um, for for me personally, I've never kind of seen myself as a role model. Um, obviously, I'm I'm from a small town in, in Wexford. Um, I, I'm doing what I love, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I can do it professionally now. But and I suppose if I do take a step back and, and look at things, not not only as a a female kind of playing at the highest level, it's great for young girls to see that. But then I suppose if you, you take into consideration that I am from a mixed background, um, it, it is something that that other kids can look up to. Um, I know when when I was growing up. Um, even just just looking up to to Paul McGrath and just just watching him play um, was fantastic. And you're looking at all levels of, of Irish sport, not just Irish football. You you've got kind of people of mixed backgrounds being being represented. And I think athletics is probably our our, our most represented sport in terms of people from from mixed background. But you look at the underage um, teams that the FAI have, whether it's women or boys or, or girls underage setups, there, there's a lot of representation there as well. And you see with the, the men's senior team, we've got more people coming through as well. And hopefully that will continue to grow. Yeah, you, you mentioned Paul McGrath there. And it was something that never occurred to me for years after watching him that the colour of his skin never came to my mind. He was Irish and that was it. That's all he was. He was an Irish player representing Ireland on international level and, and succeeding. It's kind of interesting as well in the week where, where Jack Charlton passed. And we've seen a lot of clips from the teams from Euro 88 and Italian 90 and the World Cup in, in America in, in 94, that the team was made up of the children and grandchildren of people who had left the country. But what we're seeing in recent years is the children of people who moved here or possibly children who moved here as infants are reaching that age where they can represent the country on an international level. It's just 30 years since Italian 90 and that's how much the country has changed since then. Yeah, you, you are talking about the, the new generation, a uh, new look Ireland, but just like the, those kids whose parents and grandparents uh, had moved across the, the waters to, to England, um, you've got now children's parents who may have been the first generation of their family that have been born in Ireland, or, or they're the first generation of their family that's been, been born in Ireland, but we're all still Irish in that same aspect. We, we all want to represent our country, and uh, it doesn't matter whether we're, we're born here or whether our, our distant family are Irish we all have that that one goal and uh, and that is to represent our country and, and do our best and if that means we've got more minorities playing for Ireland then that really just represents the, the new look Ireland that we have today. For me growing up I, I never seen myself as, as anything different than, than Irish as I said my, my mom is Irish and, and we always had strong roots with, with my mom's my mom's family uh, and likewise with my my, my dad's family Um, we obviously we, we were born in in the UK me and my twin brother but I've always seen myself as Irish and, and the colour of my skin has never changed that. And, and I've always been welcomed as Irish by, by anyone I, I've come across. And growing up in, in Ireland, I was fortunate enough that, that I was always welcomed, that it wasn't a case of my, my skin colour differentiated me from, from anyone else. Uh, Rihanna, just uh, your decision on not to go back to the States after your serious injury, what influenced that? Because at the time you were out there, it was a real hotbed for women's uh, football, especially international. So I'm just wondering what was your thought process behind not going back? Was it because you were maybe such a young age or, or was it that the injury was so bad? Or um, For me, it was more the, the injury. Um, obviously, I'd been through it once before. I, I knew what it entailed and I felt that I'd be best situated to, to do it from the comfort of my own home with my friends and, and my family around me to, to support me. Um, I was fortunate enough that I, I had actually done two years in IT Carlo before I went to America. So I, I deferred my place. So I was fortunate enough that that following September, I was able to, to pick up my place in, on, my, on my course in, in Carlo. And they had fantastic setup um, in terms of the, the, the facilities, sports facilities, the, the high performance gym that they have. 
Um, I just felt that for me personally, I'd get more out of it and I'd be better suited to do my recovery from home. And, and it's definitely a decision that I, I don't regret. Okay, yeah. You signed for Brighton in January and the season shut down shortly after. So you're back pre-season training now again. Is it still like joining a new club? Have you integrated fully with the squad? Are you still making friends or are you settled because there was a bit of a breakup? Um, so yeah, I'm I'm still finding my feet. Um, I think I was only here for about six weeks before kind of everything escalated with the coronavirus. Um, so in terms of that, I'm I'm still relatively new to the team. Obviously, I was fortunate enough that I did have those six weeks that that I did make friends and kind of became friendly with with the girls on the team. So I'm thankful for that. But in terms of finding my way in England again, finding my way in a new team, it, it's still kind of a, a new environment. But I'm glad that I'm able to come in pre-season this time um, at the start with everyone. Obviously, there's new players coming in. There's, there's some players gone. So it, it, it's kind of everyone's kind of looking to build from the start again. Rihanna, I just had a question for you just to, with the upcoming season when the pandemic and fixtures, you know, resume just your season goals, really, because it's exciting times for you in Brighton, Hope Hall being the head coach at the club there, and also Republic of Ireland, the national team. We're in a super position going into the Euro 2021 qualifiers. Your aspirations, I suppose, for the coming season ahead? Yeah, so obviously, um, as you said, I'll start with the international setup. Um, we put ourselves in a fantastic position going into our final three um, European qualifiers. Um, so we have an away game against Germany in September, an away game against Ukraine in October, and then we're at home in Tala then against the, the Germans the 1st of December. Um, so we put ourselves in a, in a great position to fight for um, a playoff spot, definitely, in, in terms of that group. Um, we went in third seed. And, and at the minute, if we can pick up um, one or two positive results, then the movie guarantees the playoff. So we know that we've a lot of hard work to do. We haven't been in together as a, as a team since March, um, since we had the doubleheader against Greece and Montenegro. But then also as individuals, obviously everything was kind of stopped with our clubs. Um, with three guards in Diane Caldwell, Amber Barrett and Claire Reardon that were playing in Germany. They got to finish their season. And then Denise O'Sullivan playing in the U.S., they um, who are playing in kind of a, a mini tournament with, with all teams, I think far one or two at the minute. So you're talking about four players out of the whole squad that has been able to, to play matches since March. Um, so obviously a lot of us are going into pre-season now. The girls that are playing in Ireland and the girls that are playing elsewhere as well. So we're all kind of looking forward to getting back with our clubs first and foremost, but we're really looking forward to getting back into the international setup and, and hopefully we can build on what we left off and that hopefully we'll have some, some positive results and something to cheer about from December. Absolutely, Rihanna. Thanks for that. Uh, no problems. And then with club, obviously, um, I'm looking forward to getting a good pre-season under my belt with Brighton. Um, hoping to obviously improve and, and make a stamp on the team and, and see if I can get into that starting eleven and, and obviously see how I fear then in the, in the Women's Super League. Um, it's my first time in, in a, a professional environment. Um, so I'm looking forward to see not only where I can uh, push myself against others, but then also push myself against myself then as well. That's great. Rihanna, thanks very much. No problems. I'd like to thank uh, Rihanna for joining us this evening. She's been absolutely brilliant um, and answered everything we had asked her. We'd love to have her on again sometime in the future. And we wish you all the best for the new season in the Women's Super League with Brighton. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure coming on. And, and hopefully one day we'll be able to chat again soon. See you, Bye, Rihanna. Guys. United uh, at the start of the season were among the favourites for relegation. But their form across the season has been absolutely magnificent. Uh, they've bucked the trend of recent promoted sides and are now sitting pretty at the top half of the table and casting eyes to the teams above them and thinking about Europe next season. 
Uh, we've waited all season for two players to break their ducks, and then they do it in successive games. We've seen John Egan score, and just last weekend, Dave McGoldrick scores twice in the same game to beat Chelsea. Mark Sheffield United has had this innovation of three players at the back while Chris Wilder has been in charge. John Egan was signed and took to it like a duck to water. He looks like he should have been playing Premier League football all his career. Do you think that the Irish players at Sheffield United could form the, the spine of the, the new team under uh, Stephen Kennedy? Uh, it's a strong argument right now, Joe, really, given recent performances. The season has been magnificent for Sheffield United as a club. As you said, the Irish contingent really have shone true. Yeah, John Egan, just he's a superb footballer. His strengths are there, you know, early, very strong. And Shona with the goals that he scored in recent recent fixtures. And the Stevens have been delighted with. You remember he stint with Aston Villa and there were some people that were very critical of him when he was at the football club. He's not going to make it. How he's rebounded back from his uh, from that setback to be the most uh, one of the top performers uh, for Sheffield United in the league this year. He's been on short as exceptional. And then you have the workhorse David McGoldrick up front and Chris Wilder on his press conferences, whether it's pre-game, post-game. He's always quick to Lord Dave McGoldrick, just for his work effort, ethic, just how he links play so well. And it was the light of firm against Chelsea, being rewarded with the two goals after his goal in the FA Cup uh, fixture against uh, Arsenal in recent weeks as well. So, look, these guys are in top form. I mean, Stephen Kenny would be remiss not to run the rule, definitely on all three of them. And as you say, on current form, they should be stating big claims for a Republic of Ireland spot. Phil, we haven't played three at the back successfully in a very long time like some people would argue that we'd never played three at the back successfully and it was kind of the, the Liverpool team in the the mid to late 90s that influenced uh, McCarthy's 3-5-2 formation that, that around that time but when we've seen the way John Egan is playing in a back three when you think that we've also got Shane Duffy and Kieran Clark playing Premier League football when available uh, do you think that we could play a 3-5-2? I think we have the personnel at the back. I suppose, like, as you said, we have Egan, Stevens, and you've Doherty. I would argue that they're probably our three best players at the moment. This season, anyway, they're definitely our three best players. And they all play in a 3-5-2 system. So it would make total sense that we would play that. Whether we do or not, I'm not sure. I know Kenny gave one of his first big interviews there last week, and he alluded to the fact that he probably won't play 3-5-2 as he likes to have an extra man in midfield. But I still think it's something that should be looked at. The only reason I could see us not playing it is if we didn't have the personnel. But as I said, three of our best players play in that system. But the other side of it as well is they'd be very comfortable in the back four. And I think the three of them should be in the starting team. So either or, I think defence for us now is definitely our strongest asset. And Stevens and Egan should be straight in the team. As far as uh, McGoldrick is concerned... It'd be interesting to see, does he play McGoldrick? Depends, does he go with, with Long? Long's coming back in. It's hard to know who he'll go with, but McGoldrick does more than score goals. And it was great to see him get a couple of goals in the league the last day because you'd hate for him to, to go through the season without scoring because it just looks like a blot in his copybook. But he, he is he's a lot more than goals. And as he alluded to, he gets praised nearly every game for his work rate and that. So it's all positive from a, an Irish perspective at Sheffield United. Yeah, and the manager is at pains to point out that his role isn't as a goal scorer. He's that target man to receive the ball, wait for others to come into play and find them and keep possession and build towards scoring. He's been desperately unlucky 
in front of goal. I think he'd taken more than 40 shots across the season in the Premier League before he finally scored two and against Chelsea. And they were both poacher's finishes. You know, he gambled on the keeper, not been able to hold on to the shot and both finished from close range. But I think Gary Neville said it before that the easiest part of a close range finish is the finish. You have to anticipate the shot will come in. You have to stay on side. You have to anticipate that the keeper won't save it. And then you have to finish this. You have to find the back of the net from a few yards. And we've all seen top-class strikers miss from there. So I'm really delighted for McGoldrick to finally break his duck in the Premier League. I know he's a bit older than the rest of the strikers we have available to us, but uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing him in the Iron team at the end of the year. And, you know, hopefully he can continue his scoring streak at international level. Just one more point. I think it says a lot about him that he's stayed in the team the whole season because he is a goal scorer. It's not like he's he's a Shane Long type player where he does all the work, but he mightn't necessarily finish all the time. In the championship, he, he was a goal scorer. He gets you goals. So the fact that he's managed to kind of adapt his game to the Premier League where it, it's not detrimental to his, his starting position that he's not scoring is at his age is something really to be applauded and I think it just shows the kind of level he's at and he like the football brain he has because the first thing you'd say to a striker who's not scoring goals is well you're kind of out of the team but he's managed to provide so much more that's a huge positive for him yeah and he had 15 goals last season but all came in championship so when he didn't score this season people who maybe not have been familiar with Sheffield United's style of play were wondering why he was still there but the manager loves him, the fans love him, the rest of the team loves him, and he's, he's getting the, the rewards. He wouldn't have appeared in 26 games for Sheffield United this season if he wasn't contributing to the team, and he very much has been. Yeah, like with Sheffield United, they do have depth in the striking positions, like Savali McBurney, Billy Sharp as well, legendary Billy Sharp. Um, also, Lee's Moset as well. So it's not as if Chris Wilder doesn't have full deck to kind of select here. It's just really... McGoldrick's work rate and contribution on every game is really getting him the inclusion. So, no, he's been absolutely superb this season. And, you know, hopefully he can strike on again. You know, Leicester City next fixture. Hopefully he can get another goal there, you know, and just build more confidence. Another Irish striker that's recently found the back of the net is Michael Obafemi for Southampton. And we've mentioned Southampton a few times before as one of the teams that Ireland fans may be keeping more of a closer eye on in future. Obafemi is there, Shenlong has just signed a new contract and recently we've seen Will Smallbone come off the bench and Will Ferry has also been named on the bench. There's been a solid Irish representation at Southampton's academy for the last few seasons and while there was a bit of a misstep under previous managers and some people would even argue that Hassan Hootel possibly was going to be given the dreaded vote of confidence after they were thumped 9-0 earlier this season, They've turned things around. They're not going to get relegated. And they've just taken points off of a resurgent Manchester United at Old Trafford. How do you think they're going to see at the end of the season? And what role do you think the Irish players in the squad are going to play? Limited again, I'd say, for the, up until the end of the season. And I would imagine you won't see an awful lot of them in the starting eleven next year either. I think they might give Hassel Huttle some funds. And he has a team there. He can build on. He They have good players. The 9-0 was a bit of a shock. Like when he took over the job, he was being touted as a good European manager and he, and he is. And I think the 9-0 kind of rattled his, his reputation a bit. But they have a good team there with Danny Ings and having someone like Obafemi on the bench coming 
on and playing with someone like that is only a positive for us. It was great to see Obafemi score because we heard Hassan Hutton's comments earlier in the season about how he kind of needs to get the head down a bit and focus more on his football. So you wonder, had he gone astray a bit, maybe life in the Premier League had gone to his head. But he, he does seem to have knuckled down. And the fact that he's he's got back into the team coming off the bench and scored is a huge positive. It's an intriguing one. Like the Obafemi equaliser, it's really got him in the window here of most... Irish fans' consciousness, really. You know, it was an instinctive strike. But I think Opafemi as well, himself and Hassan Hoodle have had their fallings out in, in recent months, particularly kind of just on the physicality side of things, you know, gym conditioning, all that sort of stuff. But I think Opafemi, for me, could be the one guy to look out for next season. I, it, he impressed me an awful lot in terms of his skill and his pace. So, and I think he will be really kind of chasing a first team spot. Like Shane Long has signed the long-term contract so he's going to be still there like Danny Ings is the main guy there up front but again I would think up of Hemi out of a lot of them here Will Smallbone as well you know is a guy that is well respected within Southampton could be another guy to be kind of on the radar next season as well and I mean the under 23 academy has about four or five Irish guys on the books already and it'll be interesting with Southampton because they like to promote from within and they always pride their academy guys here so It'll be interesting to see if they can graduate a few more of the under-23s up there. And if that's the case, then there could be a few more Irish guys kind of hunting for first-team squad. But again, Southampton, they've been superb since the resumption, guys. Don't you agree? I mean, they've gone on a superb run. They've taken points off United, Man City. And I think Hassan Huddle has finally got time with the Southampton squad, particularly in the pandemic, to really get his shape, you know, his philosophy true to the players. And they've really delivered in spades. One thing that got lost maybe after that loss at the start of the season was that you know when you lose by that amount of goals, the team that beats you still only get three points. They turned around the next game and they came back to draw, which to me said that the players didn't decide just down tools and walk away from the manager. They listened to what he had to say, they trusted him, and they've turned things around. That results might follow him around for a little while, but I think that what he has achieved since then and what I think they still will achieve at Southampton is probably what's going to create his legacy. Now, it's possible that he just sees it as a stepping stone to a bigger club in, in Germany or in Spain or even in England. But I think that Southampton had a really good run of picking the right manager at the right time for a few seasons in a row since the recovery for them started in League One. They had a few missteps uh, but when he was appointed, he was the first one that I kind of thought, this looks like a manager that would have been appointed before Mark Hughes, before the other, as I say, missteps were made. And it could be getting Southampton back on that track that they had to produce players from the academy, to build the first team, to sell, to invest back in the academy, to invest in the first team and to succeed it's, uh, it was interesting as well to see the three Irish substitutes that came on at the weekend. No managers brought on three substitutes in the same game since Hull in August 2014. And we could see four if Will Ferry uh, is ever brought on to make his Premier League debut before the end of the season. So away from the Premier League, the championship season is reaching its climax. And unfortunately, it's seen Derby slip away from the playoff spots. Their biggest success has been the emergence of Jason Knight as a quality goal-scoring midfielder. The Irish under-21 international only turned 19 in February, but has already played 28 times in the championship this season, scoring five goals, uh, with a further three appearances in the FA Cup and also in the 
the League Cup. Mark, even though he's only 19, do you think that we're going to see him uh, promoted to the senior Irish team from the under-21s before long? I think he has to be up there, uh, Joe, right now. Um, now, I've seen Derby in recent days. Just I was intrigued to see how they would get on as a club because they hadn't beaten anyone in top six so far this season and so it proved again. They've had a run of form that is going to mean that they're going to miss out. But Jason Knight, for me, was the one prominent guy, particularly in the middle of the park. He was always looking to get the ball and he's hit two goals in the last two games. Can't really be faulted. And I think Joe question for Derby County is if they get an offer for Jason Knight, will they take it? I think, you know, definitely a likes of a Leeds United, you could see maybe West Branch Albion or whoever goes up from Championship maybe looking at their options here. Jason Knight has really impressed me this season, no end. And he has kind of really put the hand up in these games. I think Stephen Kenny would be remiss not to run the rule over him at least when we get to the Nations League games to bring him into the senior squad and see how he is because the sky's the limit for this guy. He's only 19, but I think he has all the attributes. He's a box-to-box player, great long-range shot, can link up play very well with his defensive and his wing players. So I think, Joe, why not? I mean, I think we're cribbing enough in terms of not getting enough underage guys into the senior squad, I think this is a perfect example of a guy who, if he has a potential and a skill, why don't we just let her, literally have him in the squad and express himself? Yeah, and teams like Burnley have obviously form for signing Irish goal-scoring midfielders from Derby. So I don't see any reason why some a team like that in mid-table Premier League team looking to maybe try something different next season uh, would would look at him. He's come on massively in the last 12 months when you think that a year ago he still hadn't made his first team debut. He had been named on the bench by Frank Lampard, but uh, wasn't given his debut until this season. Uh, Phil, obviously we've been impressed by Jason Knight's performances, but how far do you think he could go? Very far, very far. To come in a championship level like that and just and just get straight into a midfield in your first season and get consistent starts and score goals is huge. There's not a lot of players that do it in their first season of any nationality. And I think now would be the time to give someone like that a shot, especially if you look at the Slovakia game coming up. He is probably exactly what we're missing in midfield at the moment, which is a bit of drive, someone who has an eye for goal, someone who can carry the ball forward. And while I know nearly every Irish manager in the past balks at the idea of playing a, a, a young player, just putting them straight into the team. The game against Slovakia is going to be behind closed doors. And he has played under-21 football, and he's playing in the championship with the likes of Wayne Rooney by his side. I think it's the, the perfect chance to even give him a half an hour if needed. If we needed someone like that during the game, even to give him a start, I, I think we should absolutely be thinking about putting him in. And as far as uh, you were mentioning a move, I think another season in the championship would do him a world of good. And then if he's as consistent as he was this season or better, the, the sky's the limit. It's it's not often you get a young player like that. Like I know we always say, but if he was English doing that in the championship, there'd be a lot of Premier League teams looking at him already. So the yeah, sky's the limit for Jason Knight. Like I said, I've been really impressed with him. It's been a long time since we've seen a player that age make uh, make a stamp on uh, on a team like Derby an established championship side um, when you think that you know he's also got Wayne Rooney in the team and 
is probably go, still going to be their their player of the season. Uh, it says a lot about you know his ability, what he's done in the last twelve months, and hopefully what we're going to see from him in the future. Finally, uh, we can't end this episode without mentioning the the passing of Jack Charlton this past week. I first heard it from a text message from a friend of mine on Saturday morning, and for Irish fans of our generation, I was ten at Italian 90, the impact that he had and that team had on my life, I'm not sure if it really can be measured. I probably wouldn't be doing this if we hadn't gone to Italian 90, if we hadn't gone to, to the World Cup in the USA in 1994. He took a team that had talented players but had underperformed under previous managers. I know we had suffered from refereeing decisions and bad luck and unexpected results shall we say, in Eastern Europe. And people complained about the style of football that he had. But he took a team that was trying, maybe trying too hard to win and made us really hard to beat. Nobody liked playing against us. Nobody liked coming to Lansdowne Road. Very few teams went away with a result. And at his first attempt at qualifying, he did what no manager had ever done by taking us to to Euro 88. To Germany and the first result in that game is still talked about more than 30 years later when we beat England. The performances at the World Cup in Italy might not have been the best. We did manage to get to the quarterfinals without winning a game but everyone I know can tell you exactly where they were when De Valeri scored a penalty against Romania. Everyone I know can tell you exactly where they were when Ray Houghton scored against Italy four years later. Watching the Boys in Green documentary back on RTE on Sunday night, I kind of felt that after the the riot at Lansdowne Road against England in 95, it might have taken some of his love for the game away. And I think some of the results that followed might have suggested that. The team was ageing and he admits himself that it needed refreshing and he might not have been the right manager to do that. I was lucky enough to be at the game against England in 2015 where he was introduced to the to the crowd and you could still see the love that Ireland football fans had for him 20 years after he'd stepped down as manager. Mark, what would you like to add about Jack Charlton's career as Ireland manager? To be honest, when I heard the news, I was down in Carlow and I'd seen a number of texts come through and it just did feel like a part of your childhood had just ended really you know as you've kind of said nine ten years old and I suppose before that I was kind of more immersed in the GAA hurling football in East Limerick but really when Jack took over from own hand and just the whole adventure of 88 the European qualifications even you know seeing the Gary McCoy's goal in Sofia and Michael Lester and Morris Setters in that lounge room watching the game it brought back memories of kind of yesteryear I mean it was kind of and it was something of optimism as well when we think about it. It was something that we'd never seen before in terms of a team for Ireland representing ourselves internationally. And we have all the the songs of 88, 90. But for me, I could chart every game, every significant game. I know where I was. I know where I was watching it. I can kind of <laughs> picture the goals. I mean, he brought us on such a, a magnificent journey from Stuttgart to Rome to Wembley to all these places to the US, 
Orlando. It was just a phenomenal journey. And I mean, it just, I was very sad and sorry, to be honest, thinking back over the memories. And then you heard kind of John Anderson on the radio, I think on RT Sports. And he was kind of mentioning how he transformed Middlesbrough and Newcastle, particularly in the Northeast, before he came to Republic of Ireland. That kind of effect, the organisational effect, knowing he was a superb game reader as a player as well. And I think that may have been missed a little bit, particularly this side of the RSC. You know, he had a superb playing career and his playing career really kind of emerged in his late 20s, coming into the whole England setup in 1966. But his game reading and being able to determine how a team should play, I thought it was second to none. And let's be brutally honest, he was the guy to really invent the high press. He urged everyone to press the opponent when they had the ball. I mean, that's been now cultivated and refined in so many ways now. But you could really date it back to Jack Charlton and the Republic of Ireland era of how the pressure game was really born in international stakes. No, superb, superb guy. The accolades, um, the, the comments about him have been top class. No, very sad news. So, no, it's uh, a good guy lost, really. Bill, is there anything you'd like to add? Yeah, just that um, I suppose you two lads have a few years on me. Not many, but a few. And, you know, 94 was my first major tournament. And I was still young. So I was trying to think back the last day. And I was a Liverpool supporter. But I suppose when I was seven or eight, if you asked me who the Liverpool manager was, I probably wouldn't have known. But my God, we all know who Jack Charlton was. And he was the first real football manager. You nearly know him before you knew the players during 94, if you were just kind of starting off in football and then I suppose he was he was what we looked at growing up he was our hero this is what we wanted to be this is what we wanted the Irish team to achieve so that's the kind of way I looked at Jack Charlton just as you know if you still said football manager to me until I was probably the age of 16 I you know the first person I think of is Jack Charlton with his hat he was the football manager just on his tactics that you were talking about there like it's very easy and I I listened to a podcast with Dunphy and Giles and Brady and a few weeks ago I think when they were talking about the tactics and how they dropped Brady and so so and you know they had they should he's such a good group of players and maybe he underachieved but all I'd say about that is you have to walk before you can run and Ireland were losers in a result sense and a and a sense of qualifying for tournaments when he took over they had never qualified for Anthem and they just seemed to always lose. He put them together the best way he knew how. And, you know, he took on the world. Like, Arrigo Saki, one of the best managers of all time, one of the, you know, you ask Pep Guardiola or any of these big managers who their hero is, Arrigo Saki, he totally outdid him in 94 with the high press. So it's it was a lot, as he alluded to, it was a lot more nuanced than kick and rush. A lot more. So he'd be greatly missed. It was actually lovely to see you know, during this time with all the bad news, while it was sad that he died, that the outpouring from everybody, he was universally loved. Haven't, yeah. heard, haven't heard anyone say a bad word about him at all. And and it, it just shows how much he's he's held to such high regard in this country. An Englishman as well. I think, I don't know, I don't know what age I was when I found out he was English. You see him standing on the sideline 94 with his hat, with his baseball hat roaring with his big red face. Back when you were young, like what... When you were my age, I was like, "Yeah, of course he's Irish. Look at him. He looks like my uncle. He'll be missed. Yeah, he'll be missed. He will. I thought it was an interesting comment from Kevin Sheedy as well that we had really, really good fullbacks in that team. So asking them to pass the ball long was making a lot from the abilities that they had. 
and I think that might have been lost somewhere along the line where people just saw us as a, a long ball team. And I'm not saying we didn't play the long ball. I'm saying that the players that we had could play long ball football very, very well. I don't know if you've ever seen the film uh, High Fidelity with John Cusack, but after his girlfriend breaks up with him, he decides to reorganize his record collection. And one of his friends comes around and asks him, like, what order is it in? It's not, it's not chronological by release. It's not by artist. And John Cusack looks at him and says, it's autobiographical. The order of these albums is in when my first girlfriend broke up for me, when I graduated from, from school, when I got my first job. And for me, Jack Charlton's time as manager is autobiographical. Like I said, I can tell you where I was for all of the highs and all of the lows. And I feel sorry for people who didn't go through that experience. I heard someone talk on the radio that their first World Cup was uh, Japan and South Korea. So they missed Italian 90 and they missed the World Cup in, in 94. And they mightn't have had the same affection for the national side that other fans who had gone through that had had. And, you know, we went 10 years between Japan, South Korea in 2002 and Poland and Ukraine in 2012. And whatever about the players that we might have lost, we might have lost some fans as well. And I think if Jack Charlton gave anything other than success to the football team, he did make the nation fall in love with its football team, which was maybe seen as the, the poor relation in international sports by Irish sporting fans before that. So um, one last time. Thanks, Jack. You're here. Yeah. We're sorry to end on such a, a, a low note, but uh, I've enjoyed the talk this evening with Philip and Mark and Rihanna earlier on. We hope to talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care.